obviously from chapter 12 last week, where we ended with kind of a, a farewell address from Samuel. Um, farewell typically means you, you're, you're giving a speech, you're giving your address, and then you leave. Uh, but Samuel doesn't leave right after this. It's kind of a farewell in the sense of transitioning from people of Israel looking to Samuel to them now respecting and looking towards Saul instead, um, which is always ironic, as we've mentioned, continuously and will continue to do throughout the book of 1 Samuel. The people wanted a king. They wanted an actual physical king that they could look to because God apparently wasn't a good enough king for them. And we're going to kind of see these implications as we continue. So again, we've shifted the attention um, from Samuel mostly over to Saul. And, and we left with Samuel giving this warning that even though Israel will have a king, they would only prevail if they obeyed God. That if they didn't obey God, both the nation and even the king as well would perish. So this idea is, hey, you're, you think you're going to get a king and everything's going to be fine. That's not necessarily the case. Uh, the king still can mess up. And if the king does not obey God, then it doesn't matter. The result will still end up being the same. Uh, so before we get into chapter 13, let's pray. God, we thank you again for today. Thank you um, just another time for an opportunity to, to open up your word and to be able to, um, to learn what it is that you would have for us, to be able to look at this story and see these situations and just see how active you are in every circumstance. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, picking up in 1 Samuel chapter 13, uh, reading verses 1 through 4. It says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. So just initially in these first two verses, we see that Saul had reigned two years when he began to kind of establish his own personal army. Saul is establishing a standing army, which um, as a citizen, you never really want to have your, your political leaders having a standing army just waiting around. But we see that he chose 3,000 men, and he split them up in two camps, one for himself and one for his son, Jonathan. Uh, 3,000 men, which initially you could say that sounds like a lot, but as we saw back in chapter 11, he had just had 300,000 men volunteer to fight for him. So it went from 300,000 men that had just done battle two chapters ago, and about two years ago, to now he's down to 3,000 men for his own personal army. Verse 3, And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in, in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. So verse 3, we start to see what is happening. Why is it that he's, he's creating this army? Why does he have this group of people? He, they hear of these Philistines, and there's this, this garrison, this small group that seems to be left over, perhaps from what we saw in chapter 7, this great victory. Um, if we look back in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, when the Philistines are subdued, it says, So the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the coast of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Israel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron, even unto Gath, and the coast thereof, did Israel deliver out of the hands of the Philistines. So we know from previous chapters when God came in, settled basically the battle all on his own, with his mighty hand 
that the Philistines ended up being scattered, that many of them were gone, and it kind of seemed as if there were only remnants left of the Philistines in Israel. Jonathan hears about this, um, and you, you know, kind of speculation as to his thinking. Perhaps he said, hey, this could be dangerous, let's go get rid of them. Or he simply said, they're not supposed to be here. Let's get them out. So Jonathan, much like his father, Saul, we, we see him as kind of being introduced as this great military individual. Jonathan is introduced to us not only as the son of Saul, but as a brave and a victorious soldier, which we see in verse 3. He goes in, smote the garrison of the Philistines. So first thing we're introduced to him is a great victory over some Philistines, a great uh, enemy of Israel. So Jonathan attacks the Philistines, and he defeats them at their post. And what does Saul do at the end of verse 3? He blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel also was had an abomination with the Philistines. And the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. It's just, I find it interesting that at the end of verse 3, and we see in verse 4, that Saul is the one blowing the trumpet. That Saul is the one that people are saying, Saul defeated this army of the Philistines. When it wasn't even Saul, it was his son. His son is the one who did it, but Saul, typical to the character we've already been exposed to, is taking the credit for himself. He's saying, yeah, I smote the, I smote the Philistines, that was me. Um, interesting, because you would assume as a father, that this would be a moment of pride for him, not in himself, but to say, look what my son did. My son's just like me. He's a great military leader. But he is taking all of the credit for what his son had done. And at the close of verse 4, it says that he gathered, and the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. Uh, Quickly flip back to chapter 10, verse 8. This is something that's going to be important throughout the rest of the chapter that we're going to see. Uh, chapter 10, verse 8, referring, everything kind of is coming back here to Samuel's instructions that we've already seen. Two years before this situation, we see Samuel speaking to Saul, and he says, And thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days shalt thou tarry till I come to thee. And show thee what thou shalt do. So, Saul, surprisingly, is obeying something that he was told two years ago by Samuel. To gather men, to go here, and he's told to to wait for seven days. Wait to do any sacrifices, wait for any offerings, wait there for seven days, and Samuel will show up and tell him what it is to do. Of all the things that we see Saul disobeying, Um, The fact that he's even starting on the right foot with this one, to me, came as a huge surprise. Why would he remember something from two years ago? But he does. And so he's trying to gather the men there. Uh, Move down to verse 5. And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash eastward from Bethlehem. An incredible picture here is painted. We just saw 3,000 men from Saul's little personal army. He begins to gather them, kind of drawing the attention of the Philistines so their awareness is kind of high. 
Then we see Jonathan just run off and completely destroy a camp of the Philistines. Small army, a garrison, just a small group, but still. Um, that's a very firm act of war when you just go and kill the enemy. Fair to say? Um, very strong signal for an act of war. So what do the Philistines do? They gather up all these people less than 20 miles from where the Israelites are going to be. And how does it describe them in verse, verse 5? I love it. It's, it gives you all these numbers, and I love whenever the Bible does this. 30,000 chariots. 30,000 chariots, and there's 3,000 people in Saul's army. The odds are not looking good already at this point. 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore. Paints a pretty clear picture that 3,000 is not um, going to be enough for this battle. And we're going to see their response. And this is finally a response that I can understand personally. Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed, then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Verse 6, we see a response that I can get behind. They look out, they see that they're going to be trapped. They see the great multitude of Philistines coming after them, and they hide. They want no part of this battle. They have no desire to fight them. They're hiding in rocks, in caves. Some even are crossing a river to get away. You see this great effort to leave. People are scared. And it says in verse 7 at the end, they followed Saul trembling. But yet Saul remained. Verse 8, and he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me, and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Saul had waited for the seven days as he was supposed to do. It's still within that seventh day. He's doing everything as Samuel had said. Again, this is something two years prior that he had been told. And what happens with Saul? He can't take it anymore. He doesn't want to finish out this last day. He's already waited long enough. You would think at this point he would just commit to finishing. But he can't wait any longer. And he tells the people to begin the sacrifice. So in verse 9, bring forth the sacrifice and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. He couldn't wait any longer. Verse 10, and it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him. The irony in the picture of this, this judgment and just everything that, go, that it entails in verse 10 is just incredible to me. That he can't wait any longer. He begins with the offering, and at the end of it, there's Samuel. It's kind of being caught with your hand in the cookie jar, right? Samuel walks up, and you can just kind of see this, Hey, what you doing, Saul? Just this incredible judgment that comes just as Samuel arrives right during the act of Saul's disobedience. Saul was impatient. He couldn't wait anymore, so he just had to do it. And he goes out to greet Samuel. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, 
and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Therefore said I, The Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself therefore, and offered a burnt offering. Verses 11 and 12, what he does when Samuel says, What have you done? Saul's, wait a minute, you don't understand, okay? There's a big army right there, you didn't come um, at this point. I didn't know what to do. People were scattered. They were leaving me. And I didn't want to have to fight a battle without first giving an offering. So I forced myself to do it. You weren't here. Uh, everyone else was leaving me. You don't understand. So he blames everybody else for these problems and for his disobedience. Who's the one person that he doesn't blame? Himself. Continuing this perfect picture of Saul, um, his pride, we see it over and over. Everyone else was to blame. Samuel for being late, the soldiers for leaving. Reminds me of when we saw um, Adam and Eve in the garden. What was Eve's response? The serpent made me do it. It was always someone else. Neither one of them said, oh yeah, I have sinned. None of them recognized their sin and asked for forgiveness in that time. So in his pride, Saul blamed others. But he's in a leadership position. He is finally the king of Israel, one that they've longed for, supposedly this great leader. As a great leader, Basically, whether it's your fault or not, you take the blame. It's under your authority. As a leader, he should have taken the blame, but instead he gives it to everyone but himself. Verse 13 and 14, And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue the Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. Once again, Samuel's bringing incredible judgment, incredible message to Saul. And again, as I, as I started off with, we remember this idea that even in the previous chapter, Samuel and giving this farewell address said, look, you can have a king, but it doesn't matter who the king is. If he does not obey God, this will not go well. And in chapter 8, we get this great warning about what is going to happen. And everything is coming true. Everything is happening just as Samuel, through God, had said it would. So Saul had behaved foolishly by not obeying the Lord. And Samuel responds by saying that the crown will be taken and given to another, one who is after God's own heart one who will follow his commands, one, will, who, one who will obey him. And at this point, the kingdom is yet to be taken from him. He's going to continue as a king, but he'll have no lasting dynasty. And this was everything to, pe to the Jewish people. This idea of a dynasty and everything with Abraham and the continuation of a lineage and tracing it back. Everything about that was so incredible to him. So for Saul to hear... But thy kingdom shall not continue, but it's going to be given to someone else, one who follows the Lord, one who obeys his commands, one who actually seeks after his heart. An incredible sense of judgment, an incredible lesson, a very teachable moment for Saul. His sin in this instant, and his disobedience and impatience cost him the dynasty that he had so longed for. Verse 15 and 16 and Samuel arose and gat him up from Gilgal unto Gibeah of Benjamin, 
And Saul numbered the people that were present with him, about 600 men. So what started off as 3,000 was now to 600, which is about a fifth, if my math is right, of those people. Just an incredible thing. From 3,000 down to 600, the same man who just recently had 300,000 volunteers when he first became king. But again, if we remember how we got those volunteers, it was through fear. Well, if you don't, then we're going to take your stuff. <laughs> oh, okay, I guess I should probably go fight for him then. Pretty simple, um, pretty easy decision. But what we find here in verses 15 and 16 and throughout this chapter is that the people feared the Philistines more than they feared Saul. And so Saul had no support. Verse 16, And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people that were present with them abode in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And the spoilers came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned the way that leadeth to, to Orpha unto the land of Shuel. And another company turned away to Bethron, and another company turned the way of the border that looketh to the valley of Zebulun toward the wilderness. So the, these Philistines are coming out in different camps, and they're all across the land, and they're in these different areas, and they're pretty much watching the roads. They're controlling everything. You can't get in or out. Everyone um, that is trying to be helping the Jews would be punished there. The Philistines are sending these small parties and raiding the people so they wouldn't help the Jews. Everything about it um, was a very bad situation, a very bad look for the Jews. They're seeing this and saying, we can't travel, we can barely hide, we can't do anything. And you would think that they could at least look back and say, but we can still fight. Verse 19, Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords, or spears. Verse 19 tells us that the Jews had no one to make weapons. They had few men and they were poorly equipped. So they're very poorly equipped soldiers and there's very few of them. It's not even in a good case of we have, we're poorly equipped, but there's at least a lot of us that are poorly equipped. There's basically no one to fight and they basically have no weapons. And they're fighting an army that is... Um, as the sand which is on the shore in the multitude. That, that doesn't look good. 600 people, many without even weapons, facing this great Philistine army. Verses 20 and 21, But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share and his coulter and his axe and his mattock. We're seeing this idea that they had to go and to pay for things to be sharpened. Yet they had a file for the, for the mattocks and for the coulters and the forks and the axes and to sharpen the goads. Verse 22, So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan, but with Saul and with Jonathan his son was there found. We see a very bleak picture being painted for the Jews in chapter 22. Basically this whole chapter is leading and culminating for what we're going to, to see next week. But they lose men. Their leader has just been told, hey, you're pretty much the end of the line for your family as far as the kingship goes. It's going to be given over to someone else. You lost four-fifths of your army, which was already small. You're facing over 30,000 chariots. 
and you don't have weapons, and your people are trembling and they're scared. Nothing about this sounds good. They're small in number, they're small in weapons, they're small in faith. But what we're going to see in this next chapter to come is that even though they were small in those things, they still had a great God who stayed by them the whole way, even in their disobedience. He continued to live up to his promise. Verse 23, And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the passage of Michmash. So we see at the close of chapter 13, we see this scene being set, and it kind of ends, and all you're left with is, Israel has no chance against this great army. There's nothing that can be done with no people and no weapons and no faith. What is it that can be done? And we're going to end up seeing uh, this day of battle. We're going to see what happens next week. So it kind of hangs with some suspense as you read through this. But we see, we see when we look at Saul that his pride, his impatience, and his disobedience cost him a dynasty with his family, the continued kingship of family. But more so than that, his lack of faith actually led to a lot of failures as a king overall. We're going to get to those because they continued to come as he continued to be proud, continued to disobey. But also we see that other people are affected by this as well. His actual kingdom is affected by this. You know, it, we like to say that, and you hear it commonly in the world, that, well, my sin or my problems just affect me. Who does it hurt? If I'm the only one, that's fine. But sin never affects just one person. Saul probably thought, I can do this, it's just an offering. Who's going to care? I need to do this before battle. What he thought was right um, wasn't right. And we're going to see that again in chapter 15. But his disobedience led to a lot of problems for a lot of people, including himself. Um, just a very good warning and a good lesson for us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for another day to open your word. Thank you for making it clear to us how important our obedience is as we respond to you. We thank you that we're able to look at these different individuals to be able to see um, these different situations and thank you that, that we're able to see um, your word being spoken through Samuel, giving these warnings and every time they're returning true. We thank you that your promises are true. We thank you uh, for loving us today and that we're able to, to continue to put our hope in you each and every day as our rock. God, I just pray that you would be with us as we go from here today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you all and you are dismissed.